Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords, and this is the 393rd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Timothy Walsh, author and director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library, and we're going to be talking about his book, Irish Iowa. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsavitel. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show, which we call Farouk Denarin. And today we'll be talking about the book, Irish Iowa. You can't get a better title than that. With Dr. Mm-hmm. Timothy Walsh, author and director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks a lot. Well, and I must honestly say that this is a topic that's warmed to my heart because I'm surrounded by some Scottish guys on the air, and we don't need to talk about that. But can we're you give Celts. us... <laughs> we're all Celts there, John. Yeah, 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 I knew it was coming. Um, can... Milo Falcha. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you give us a little background on why um, you talked, chose the topic of Iowa Irish sure. immigrants coming to Iowa in the 19th century? Sure. Well, one of the things that, that perhaps uh, intrigued me most, well, first of all, let me say that my interest in the Irish goes back to my youth in Detroit. Uh, I used to tell people that I thought that God's chosen people were Irish Catholics born on the east side of Detroit. So it was a kind of an insular society, and that often is the case with ethnic communities. You think that you and your particular people or ethnic heritage are the, the top of the heap, but of course, most of the Irish who came to the United States settled in urban areas in large cities like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit, and so forth. But what about the, the Irish uh, who settled in rural states like Iowa? And that intrigued me, although I did nothing about it. I uh, continued to be interested in the Irish, collect books and materials, uh, came here to Iowa in 1988 to be the assistant director and then later director at the Hoover Presidential Library. Uh, didn't have any time to do that kind of a book, uh, but it was always there. And so in retirement, as they always say, oh, when I retire, I'm going to write a book. And my last book, my 24th book, is the one on the Irish in Iowa, the rural Irish for the most part, not exclusively, lots of Irish in Davenport, Dubuque, Clinton, Iowa City, uh, and all over the urban centers of Iowa, but also lots in, in rural communities where they, uh, small towns like Emmitsburg and areas and counties where they, uh, they established farms. Jay, since you're going to be retiring soon, are you, do you have that book in mind? <laughs> I, I have multiple books, actually, <laughs> just waiting on the burner. Okay. Um, Tim, I have a question. So, when did Irish immigration to Iowa really start? Was this a coinciding with the um, potato famine? Was it um, as uh, farm workers being being um, sort of recruited, or at least this was a, a great place to go? What What's drawing uh, Irish to Iowa, and when does it start to happen? Sure, that's a really good question. Of course, like so many... Uh, migrations, it's commingled with the development of the state from a territory into a state, and in fact one works uh, in favor of the other. We needed people in Iowa to uh, farm that rich, extraordinary farmland, which was available shockingly for a dollar and a quarter an acre, Uh, and so we needed people. 
Uh, at the same time, in the late 1830s, you have the Catholic Church establishing Dubuque, just a small settlement, as a diocese, with all of Iowa coming under the, the purview of the Diocese of Davenport. So you have a church being, or a diocese being established. And so that's another uh, effort or institution that's going to start drawing people. Uh, and then the appointment of uh, Bishop Matthias Loris for, for Dubuque, and the people he brought to Dubuque who were go-getters and promoters who said, we want to bring Catholics to Iowa, where are we going to find these Catholics? Well, one place, of course, would be obviously Ireland, where they spoke the English language. Uh, coincidentally, of course, you have uh, terrible poverty in Ireland. You have eventually that, that uh, growing uh, emergence of the famine beginning in 1846 up to 1851. So it's a kind of a push-pull uh, process where on the one hand the Irish are being pushed out of Ireland because of the famine and the poverty and the death, but they're also being pulled to Iowa. There were ads and flyers. Uh, there was no social media back then, but there were flyers and, and other promotional materials in newspapers, uh, both along the East Coast, but also in the Irish port saying, come to Iowa. It's the, the emerald of the Midwest. Uh, or the Emerald of the West. You know, they were all kinds of promoters. Charles Corkery, who worked for, uh, for Bishop uh, Loris, was a real promoter, and so they attracted some of the Irish who were already in Boston and New York who wanted and had a little bit of money so that they could get west. And then also he attracted uh, the Irish down in the southeast part of, uh, of uh, Ireland to come along, for example, with the monks, uh, who established the monastery at New Mallory. They had a, a, a mother a monastery or a, a patrilineal monastery there at Mallory in Iowa. All of these things coming together to draw people to Iowa, to get a foothold. Uh, what was most interesting, too, in addition to just this general push, was the number of Irish who came to Iowa through the port of New Orleans. Uh, it was really more convenient for them to land at New Orleans rather than New York or Philadelphia and then take a steamboat up the river and uh, uh, disembark, perhaps at Davenport, but more likely at Dubuque. Uh, that's very interesting because my question was going to be, again, um, what was the portage in which many of the Irish got here? Because my um, Irish Catholic grew up on a farm uh, my relatives came here in a totally backward way compared to what you said. But mm -hmm. they had they said that um, uh, a lot of the Irish were also um, at, hanging out in, uh, in Ottawa, Canada, and they stayed mm -hmm. there for a while. And then there was a generational movement to the Midwestern states. Did you guys come across any towns that kind of have a Canadian base before they come to Iowa or There's the Midwest? Interestingly enough, there's a lot of, of uh, communication and connection back and forth. You might call them folk pathways. It was much easier for the Irish, particularly those who were most impoverished, to get to Iowa and get to the United States through Canada. My own relatives, for example, my great-great-grandfather was a cobbler. He repaired shoes for uh, sailors and others in port. 
uh, in Quebec, but then migrated down to across the river to Detroit, where my relatives eventually settled. But they also came across, the Irish came across the Canadian Plains and dropped down into Iowa. They were looking for cheap farmland. And of course, people were moving back and forth across the border. There wasn't, it's not like it is today, where you have to have all kinds of identification or a passport. You just literally wandered into the United States. So much so that there was a group of Irish nationalists in the 1880s, including Michael Gannon of Davenport, uh, who were uh, suspected of being terrorists and who were going to attack Canada, so much so that the Prime Minister of Canada uh, approached the United States State Department and said he wanted them to explore this Gannon fellow and another uh, a man named John Brennan from Sioux City because he thought they were terrorists and that they were going to attack, they were going to organize an army of Fenians to come and attack Canada which, of course, is a silly notion. Talk about fake news. Uh, at any rate, never happened. They were, they were proved to be ardent uh, American patriots, but uh, end of story. But that's part of that Canadian-American connection. Okay. Okay, um, this will probably be the last question for this segment. So you kind of gave us two different um, end games when uh, Irish immigrants got to Iowa. Um, if you had a little bit of money, you could buy land. Land was mm -hmm. cheap. Um, and uh, then you could also work basically as a farmhand. Can you mm -hmm. give us a sense of how much of each of those pathways was, was chosen? Well, I would say for the most part, the Irish, even in Iowa, remained an urban people. That is, if you looked for the dense population of the Irish. It would be Dubuque County. It would be Scott County. It would be Johnson and, 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 and sort of islands of concentrations. That having been said, as a proportion, a general proportion, uh, there were more Irish scattered into Palo Alto and Benton and other counties where they did have farms. If you had no money and you got as far west as Dubuque or Davenport, you would probably put your back to work uh, on the railroad, the Irish uh, in Iowa made an enormous contribution to laying the rails and then eventually uh, in running the, the railroads themselves as, as brakemen and firemen and engineers. Uh, and so they really became uh, a central part of the transportation system. And if they then had a little money saved up from their work on the railroad, they probably got some land from one of the uh, right-of-ways, the rail companies that allowed them to, uh, to farm proximate to one of the rail lines. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second 
segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Timothy Walsh, author and director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library, and we're talking about his book, Irish Iowa. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. And Brett, as someone who is not Irish... She's not lucky. (laughs) (laughs) So you said in the first segment that you had um, Irish enclaves largely in urban areas. Um, How were they received from the by the people who were already there? It's an interesting uh, question because, of course, there's a tendency for us to assume that the way the Irish were treated in East Coast cities like Boston and New York and Philadelphia, where there was a lot of hostility toward the Irish, they were thought of as swarthy and and un-American, perhaps more loyal to the Pope in Rome than they were to the United States. That wasn't the case in Iowa, not typically in the Midwest. The Irish were welcomed, not only because they added to the population. It was necessary, of course, to build up the population for Iowa to become a state in 1846, but also to develop the land. Iowa is a huge state compared to some of the ones in the east. So if you were ambitious and determined, uh, you could find your way and make your fortune as an Irishman in an Iowa in a way that uh, wasn't the case uh, in, in other uh, cities along the East Coast. Also, I want to emphasize the fact that the Irish uh, uh, specifically, but also the Catholic Church in general, brought to many communities a quality of life that made the state more attractive to additional newcomers. So, for example, the number of hospitals and the number of asylums and the number of schools that were established by uh, orders of women religious, Irish orders of women religious, made the quality of life much better in Iowa, even if you weren't Catholic. Because if there was a, a, a Irish Catholic finishing school for girls, well, that was very attractive even to Protestant elites. So what we, we want to be able to stress is to realize that the story of the Irish in Iowa is, is different from the story of the Irish, let's say, in New York or uh, out west. And so when you put the story together nationally, it's a little bit like a mosaic or a quilt. There, each state has its own unique elements. There are some common elements, of course, as I said, urban uh, centers and so forth. But uh, the Irish in Iowa had opportunities. They seized opportunities. The fact that they chose Iowa was generally an indication that they had ambition. And it was a better, might say, or a less hostile experience. There was some hostility. There was a Ku Klux Klan here uh, in Iowa that was anti-Irish and anti-Catholic, but it was nothing like it was in other states. Rick? Tim, I uh, was uh, uh, interested in a comment uh, that you made about the uh, Canadian terrorists. Uh, I don't know if you watch Netflix uh, program Murdoch Mysteries, but they've yeah. done a couple uh, shows that uh, touch on that uh, alleged, uh, you know, invasion of Canada from from uh, uh, the United States, and yes. all the characters are are uh, ragtag Irish. So I thought oh, that yeah. was a curious. Uh, curious it comment. is. There's an organization, a secret society called Clan Nagale, which was, of course, the 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 Gaelic clan that was was a kind of a secret society. 
uh, and Sinn Féin, of course, emerges out of that same tradition much later. But, uh, but this, this concern that the Canadians had, which was sparsely populated, that the Irish uh, would, would uh, try to attack them, and there were occasionally uh, cross-border forays. They didn't amount to very much. But uh, there, there was a lot of, uh, of chest thumping and, and shouting and meetings about, uh, you know, taking Canada. So it, it, sure. uh, there's always been a connection between the Canadian Irish and the American Irish. Uh, a question, Tim, then. What about the, uh, the Orangemen? Mm. Uh, when you have this massive migration of Irish, of course, it's divided the Northern Ireland, and then, uh, then of course, the, the blessed and heavenly southern part. No, in all seriousness, though, when you had this mass migration over, were there Protestant Irish coming? And, uh, and the, the second part of the question is, because I've done Ragbri a jillion yep. times, and yep. you cross the towns and you see these small towns that you're talking about that have a very Irish core to them. Are there towns in Iowa where it's the Irish Protestant core? There, well, first of all, the interesting thing is the, the concept of the orange, which is so strong, the, the, the uh, Irish Presbyterian that you find in the, the six counties of the north that are the constitute Northern Ireland, uh, is, is, is different. It's manifested here differently. And in fact, the Irish who come first to the United States and settle along the East Coast are uh, often uh, 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 what we call Scots-Irish, and they self-identified by that term, Scots-Irish, often of Presbyterian heritage. You might say that the first Irish-American president was Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. So uh, in Appalachia and then even in parts of New York City, you had the Scotch-Irish who established the the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick, which, uh, you know, a very typically Irish organization, started as an Irish Protestant organization. And the first real Irish uh, patriots, Irish national patriots in Ireland, of course, were Protestants, people like Wolf Tone uh, and, and Robert Emmett and others, for whom Emmitsburg is named, Charles Stuart Parnell, for whom Parnell, Iowa, is named, were Protestants. So there always was a strong tradition. There was not that kind of hostility here. There were so few people that those Scots-Irish, including some of my wife's relatives who built a mill uh, up uh, near Fort Atkinson, uh, were in regular communication with the local priests. They, they shared an interest in books and literature and so forth. And when you're facing common hardships, you don't stand on the ceremony of, of national grudges that go back to a to a, uh, a problem on the other side of the pond, as they say. Um, Tim, I'm interested, having read a little bit of your book, um, I think most Iowans are unaware of, of just the, the volume of Irish um, who emigrated. I think your book states that they became the second largest, yep. largest immigrant group in the state. Um, and so I'm, I'm also interested then, how did this play out in terms of public service? Things like hospitals and schools and those kinds of things. Were, were the Irish very much involved in that kind of work as well, well yes. as working on the railroads? Sure. I mean, there's no question that the life of the church, which was so closely intertwined with, with the Irish, most of the bishops, for example, the first three bishops of, of Iowa uh, through Dubuque, the bishops of Dubuque, which essentially constituted all of Iowa, were Irish. And then uh, even in Davenport, once Davenport becomes a diocese in 1881, Bishop Hennessy, who established St. Ambrose, but also then his successors, Bishop Davis and so forth, uh, are, uh, are also of, of, of Irish heritage. 
So, so what you have there is a lot of social services being led through the church. There also was, of course, very strong, active uh, social welfare organizations led by people like Michael Gannon of Davenport, uh, who was uh, involved with the Ancient Order of Hibernians. And so you have a lot of that kind of self-help social welfare being done through the AOH. And then on the West Coast in Sioux City, John Brennan and others, they were all involved in building libraries and improving the quality of life, often serving as mayors of communities uh, and, and doing that sort of thing. They, The governors of Iowa remained... Uh, kind of Anglo-Protestants for the most part. You didn't see any strong ethnic tradition uh, emerging uh, in a political machine in Iowa the way you would have, say, in Chicago or New York or elsewhere. So what you don't have is that visible political activity. Uh, Lewis Murphy in the 1920s became a senator, uh, but uh, by then, by the 1920s, Although the Irish are still strong, it's not as strong a tradition because we're not getting as many people. After 1924, the, the, the wave of immigrants was shut off, and uh, basically you have Irish culture being nurtured almost as a, as a nostalgia. It's, it's your grandfather who came from Ireland or great-grandfather, or, and now most of us who are Irish who go to these festivals uh, are five or six generations in this country. Brett. You talked a little bit about sectarian tensions with relation to um, Canada. Were there any attempts from um, Iowa and Irish to funnel support back uh, to the home island uh, to get the British out of there? Absolutely, and that's a very good point. Particularly in 1880 when, when uh, Charles Stuart Parnell toured the United States, uh, he was visiting the largest of the Irish enclaves, but the Irish of Iowa were so determined to have him come, and he was the leading advocate for Irish independence, the Irish, uh, you know, uh, pushing the Brits out. Uh, and he came to this country. He traveled to, to uh, first to Dubuque and then down to Davenport and over to, uh, eventually to, to uh, Des Moines, in each case really spending just a few hours delivering remarks but the, the people raised thousands and thousands of dollars in support of the Irish in Ireland. And when you read newspapers like uh, the Catholic Messenger, which uh, really uh, in, in, uh, served as a statewide paper, published as much Irish news as it did uh, news about uh, uh, the Catholic Church. So really you have strong Irish ties uh, to the homeland, to the motherland, and money going back as uh, as it was available through organizations like uh, like that of Charles Stewart Parnell and others. So uh, I was surprised to find how strong Irish nationalism. There's a chapter on it uh, in in the book. How strong Irish nationalism was in Iowa? Because I figured, well, they'll just blend right in with other groups. But no, they they tried to sustain and nurture their Irish roots as much as they could, and in fact, continued to do so in festivals like, like the ones they have in, in Dubuque and in Waterloo. The one in Waterloo is huge, and it's, it's maybe five or six years old. Yeah, it is really impressive. I've been oh. there a couple times. Rick? Yeah, yeah Tim, you mentioned uh, uh, waves of uh, immigrants coming over from Ireland. Uh, I taught at uh, a couple of universities in Nevada uh, 
early American history as to why people immigrated from uh, Europe uh, and other parts of the world. One thing I, I, I wanted the students to understand is the motivation. What was the inducement uh, to give up your homeland, all that you know, and and probably all the people that you, you, you uh, uh, your relatives and your your friends, uh, was there unique inducements uh, motivating the early waves of uh, Irish immigrants coming to Iowa specifically? Yeah, well, first of all, yes. I mean, to, to some extent, what you have is when you have a situation like the famine on Gortamore, the, the, the starvation, and then you have a local priest who is um, willing to organize uh, a, a group of people to uh, 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 come to this country and lead a group, as was the case uh, in uh, Father Thomas Hoare, leading a group uh, up to Alamakee County, for example, and you get a, a bench, a, a, a kind of a, a beachhead there, uh, or a riverhead, whatever you might call it. Sure. But then also you have that that uh, promotion being done by lay people in Iowa, writing letters back home saying, come on over, the land is richer than anything we've ever seen in, in Ireland. Or you have Bishop Loris, who is uh, himself of Swiss heritage, visiting Ireland, talking directly to the monks at Mellory, saying, if you come here, I will give you vast quantities of land that you can then cultivate to support a, a new monastery. So all of those things are attractions, as well as, of course, the enormous burden of just sheer hunger. They had nothing when they were leaving uh, and they knew it was the end of the old life. They used to say that the last night uh, before the departure was, uh, uh, a, you know, was when they held a traditional Irish wake because mom knew, mother knew, she would never see her sons and daughters, mainly sons, again because they were going to America. They weren't coming back. They would send money back. They would write, but they weren't coming back. They were, they were going in a positive direction. And Iowa became, because of the land... We have to keep stressing that. And it's so true, not just for the Irish. It's true for the Czechs and for the Germans and the Danes. Every group that came to Iowa came because they could, that lure of land, rich farmland. Okay. It's customary for us to give our guests the last words on the show. Tim, why do you think knowing about the contribution of Irish immigrants to Iowa is relevant in today's world? Well, I think it's important because it's not the traditional view of the Irish we've, we've often had, which is down and dirty and from the East Coast. Uh, you know, it's not uh, the Irish of, of South Boston. This is a very unique group of people, uh, and they populate not only here in Iowa, but also across the Midwest. We're, we're ambitious, we're determined, we're successful. It's an extraordinary success story, and I hope people embrace it, enjoy it, and uh, that the book entices somebody to write a bigger, better book about the Irish, because they certainly deserve it. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 393rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptil. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Timothy Walsh, author and director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library. We've been talking about his book, Irish Iowa. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.